0: It happens to me, I think, regularly, that I, from this platform, will share a story with you. I'll tell you something that I think is significant, something that happened in our home, in the family, share the details of a story with you, touching sometimes, and then we'll get in the car and drive home, and I will hear a voice somewhere in the car. Someone will say, Mom, you really messed that one up that happened to you too? You said that dad talked to the police when we got pulled over and that didn't happen. And you said we were, it was late at night and actually we were on our way home from school. And you said it went like this and that wasn't it at all. And then another voice will interrupt and say, well, actually dad was the one that talked to the police officer and mom, you weren't even in the car. (laughs) We just told you about it. And could you get it right the next time? It sometimes can take all the way the drive down the hill in Loma Linda. We're still debating the story. And I'm thinking, but these are precious stories, stories that convey truth, stories with a point, with a meaning to them. And, and we're going to argue over these. these are stories about Elisa getting caught on fire around the campfire and Amanda running away from home when she was little and a stranger rescuing me out of a, a car. We're going to argue about did we get the details right? The first story in your Bible, precious story to us in a precious piece of literature, is one of those stories argued over. The story from the beginning, Genesis 1. One of those stories people argue about and say, did you get the details right? One of those stories people are very invested in one of those stories people often say, well, you've invented that, or that's impossible, or, well, that conflicts with something else we know, or that's just what you simple-minded Christian folks like to talk about. story that's argued over, and it actually stands the test of time, at least culturally. It, it remains of cultural interest, contemporary interest. This fall, when schoolchildren go back to school in the state of Florida, at least, if not other states, they return to the classroom with new regulations in place. They return to the classroom where their science teachers, by state law this year, will, are required to teach science based upon the organizing principle of life. That's what it's called. This came after years of lawsuits and debate because not all schools were required to teach it the same way, you know, and and some school districts had a more faith-based perspective and would teach from a faith-based perspective and other science teachers would teach from a, a more uh, natural law perspective and until this year new laws in place. One of the teachers involved in formulating that law, this uh, Mr. Campbell, David Campbell, who teaches high school science, he uh, spoke in an article in the New York Times in August, on August 24, and he said when he returns to the classroom, he realizes if he approaches this wrong, he will lose his Christian students at the get-go. So when he sits in class this year, he plans to introduce the organizing principle this way. He will put Mickey Mouse up on the screen. And he'll put the picture of Mickey Mouse from the beginning, 1928, the skinny, scrawny Mickey Mouse, and, and then he'll replace it with the Mickey Mouse from the 1940 eras, who looks a little more like the sorcerer's assistant. And then he'll replace that with the, the mouse from the 1980s Mickey Mouse Club fame that many of you know, the one that's a little plumper and rounder and bigger eyes. And then he'll ask his students, what happened to Mickey? And the students will say, well, the tail got shorter. The eyes got bigger, he got happier along the way. And Mr. Campbell will respond yes, he evolved. Because that's how Walt Disney makes money when Mickey is happy. Selection. It's called selection. Some of the students in his classroom will come armed with a document that circulates on the internet in a lot of Christian evangelical Christian communities. Ten questions to ask your science teacher about evolution. Ten questions designed to undermine the conversation of natural selection and evolution. In Adventist schools this fall, it will probably happen somewhere across the States. That even our students in their science classes will be advised to skip over the section in their science book that helps them understand what's going on in the natural world, what's become what most people are now calling the scientific consensus of an organizing principle. It's a story from the book of our Bible, How Life Began. It's even in the presidential campaign, not just this week, but even last year on the campaign trail and in televised debates, candidates from both sides of the parties were asked, Do you believe Genesis 1 records a literal six-day event? Yes or no? A story. Some people name this story from the beginning of Genesis science. Some name it history. Some name it myth for for people of faith, hostility between science and faith, and faith and science. Genesis, which is origins, the beginnings. This is our topic now for the next few weeks, and, and I originally was going to set the conversation up as a, as a faith and science conversation from up front. And then it occurred to me, after spending some time in the Bible... That perhaps what we don't need is a faith and science debate, but what we might need is to read the text. Christians might need to read the text. It occurs to me that sometimes we work off of memory and we work off of what we were taught back in the day, and that we don't always and often open our Bibles and read the text again and let the text speak. Let the text fall silent where it's silent, let it say what it can say. Let go where it can't speak. Let the text speak. The Bible begs to speak, be, to speak on its own terms. Genesis 1 through 4, the story of beginnings, the story we find ourselves in. That's what we'll study for these eight weeks. Today, just two verses, Genesis 1, beginning with verse 1. Guys, am I okay to wander? It's not good if I can't wander, y'all. Gonna be a bad sermon, I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form, your Bible might say, without form and void. It was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All stories start somewhere, and in the Bible, from the first few words, from the first few verses, the, verses, the story starts in the beginning. Did you notice uh, um, it doesn't say when the beginning is? I believe the first two verses are the condition, the context, the backdrop, the stage for the creation story. They're not yet the creation story. They're what's narrated ahead of time, and it's hard for us to know all of this because we don't read Hebrew, and we don't understand the way these sentences are put together, and I I very much like the way John Pauline said that last week. If you were here, did you hear him say, you're just going to have to trust me on this? Did you hear that line? I rather liked that. You're just going to have to trust me on 10 years of scholarship. It's this way. So you're just going to have to trust me. I think Genesis 1 and 2 is not yet the creation story. It's the background. for, and It's the narrated, narration leading up to in the beginning. But it's not yet creation. In the beginning, something happens. Not before the beginning or after the beginning. And when is the beginning? The text doesn't even answer and that's the question we often ask well when was the beginning and how was the beginning and the text doesn't say it's as one author says the beginning is good enough for God interesting in the beginning the story happens more importantly, in the beginning, God creates. It is, it is God who creates and makes and speaks and says and names and blesses and hovers. It is God's story. God is the primary character and actor in the story. In the beginning, God creates, the text says, the heavens and the earth, which is a way of saying from the highest of the expanse to the lowest of the expanse, everything in between, this is the material, this is the matter that God claims and begins to work on. The earth is without form. It's, it's, without, vo- it's, without, it's without form and void, and there is darkness over the face of the deep. There's darkness over the surface. That is to say, what God begins with is uninhabited and it's unproductive. Some say chaos right here, because in other stories, the deep waters often symbolize chaos. Whether it's chaos, whether it's uninhabited and just unproductive and and laying still, whatever it is, God now claims it for God's own and begins to work. And the Spirit of God was hovering, the Bible says. I will tell you that is a part of the verse I don't usually pay attention to which is a good reason to open the Bible and read it again the spirit of god is hovering and I'm less interested in that statement because of the doctrine of the trinity which I don't think those original the original community was concerned about I'm more interested in interested in what is a god who hovers what is that word Used only three times in the Old Testament. Another of the times it's used is in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, when Moses sings, sings about the God that's bringing them through through Israel, uh, the Israelites out of the Egypt, and Moses speaks of this God. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over the young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them. On its pinions. That's what it is to hover, like a mother eagle who hovers over the nest, gathering and catching and carrying. God, from the beginning verses of the Bible, is hovering and fluttering and responding and and moving. And these are qualities of tender love and of cherishing. And those are values that science doesn't measure nor speak of. We get the first hints that the story is about a God who's just very, very different. If you have not read stories, ancient creation stories from the other cultures that existed during these biblical times, we've listed some on the website. Pastor Ken has collected some of these ancient creation stories for you to read. I encourage you sometime this week, go onto the church website and scan those. Look at the similarities. Look at the differences from Mesopotamia and Babylon and Canaanite and from Greece and Rome and Look and see, and what you might notice is that the God in the Genesis story is vastly different than the God or the the divinity of any of those other creation stories. Usually in creation stories, beginnings stories, the God is responsible to bring things into being through some kind of chaos. Chaos comes. It's at the core of all creation stories, but it comes at the hand of a God until we get to the Israelite story of creation. And here is a God, instead of chaos, who hovers and gathers and protects. And oh, chaos comes. It just doesn't come at the hand of this God. Because this God has no rivals in Genesis 1. It's a God of a different kind, a God who doesn't create conflict. It's a story uh, not of God's methodology, we learn, about, but it's about God's intent. I have really only one opinion I'd like to communicate with you this morning. One point, that is. I'd like to communicate to you about the backdrop of the story here for creation that now guides not only everything in Genesis 1-4, to but the entire Bible. Just one point, really, to make, that the language of Genesis 1 is not the language of science. It doesn't answer the questions science asks. Science isn't even a discipline when the text of of Genesis is gathered and put together. Science isn't its own discipline. Creation story, Genesis 1, speaks a different language than science. It also isn't the language of history. If we think it's a, a record of literal historical events in chronological order, we are in trouble already by Genesis chapter 2, when there is indeed another creation story. Isn't that right? And when you set them side by side, you notice that it really can't be happening both ways if we're going to read this literally, word for word, as a chronological order. This used to be one of the questions I would give to students when I taught junior high Bible studies. Just go home over the weekend at Sabbath lunch, sit down with your parents and ask them, which of those creation stories did they prefer, Genesis 1 or Genesis 2? The children's eyes would be so big. Are there two? Do my parents know there are two? We're in trouble already by Genesis chapter 2, just like we are in the gospel stories, when details and facts and chronology and the order is different. The language of Genesis 1 is not history being recorded. It's poetry, but it isn't even just Hebrew poetry. It's story, but it isn't just narrative and the the telling of a good story. It's even more than that. If the children of Israel needed details, they turned to passages... Like Noah in the ark, this is exactly how you build the ark. Here's exactly how you construct a sanctuary in the desert. This is what you do when you need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's reign. But when we're in Genesis 1, we are in this highly exalted form of poetry, exquisite all on its own, unlike almost anything else in the Bible. Exalted poetry, I like that category someone has given it. Poetry, which speaks truth and both transcends and undergirds science all at the same time, but not using the discipline of science or history to do it. Poetry that exclaims, there is so much more happening in this world than than matter and energy. There is something of deep purpose and meaning, and those are questions science doesn't address. Genesis. You really can't argue over exalted poetry very well. You really can't argue over telling it the right way so easily. It's like asking the right way to interpret a Rembrandt or to appreciate Beethoven or the right way to understand Shakespeare, the only and one right way. This occurred to me while watching the hurricane, the first hurricane this week. At the beginning of the week, you saw the pictures of Gustav as he blew in from the the southern part of the states through the Caribbean uh, up into the New Orleans area. You saw as two million people were evacuated. What always interests me, we know the rain is coming. We hear Category 4 storm. We see the pictures. We revisit Katrina. We know how dangerous it is. It is always fascinating to me, the crazy reporters who run out into the storm. And sometimes I turn this on just to watch the stupid people who run out into the storm. Look at this collection CNN put together, and we'll leave the volume down. CNN did its own spot on stupid reporters who ran out into the storm. Uh, Reporter after reporter.
1: Of most weatherbeats. It's (laughs) coming ashore right now. There was no sense in grief, but the big
0: concern: flooding where I am. Starting to blow around and we want to get out of the way. Out of the
1: way, not out of camera range. Not a lot of commercial. <laughs> <laughs> With so much danger and damage, Weatherman Al Roker was lucky to lose just his hat. And of course, right now, the uh sorry. <laughs>
2: the,
1: the, well, there's so much for that
2: hat.
1: CNN's <laughs> Ali she's like very first hurricane.
2: Or what it feel like? <laughs> He came
0: back later to Allie's deserted position. I'd,
2: we assure you that he did not blow away.
0: <laughs> he couldn't blow away. He was tethered. I heard Allie talking a little bit earlier, Chad, about you know the shrimp. Allie wasn't the
1: only one hanging on for dear life. I'm
0: to <laughs> okay. Haroldo Rivera was out Thank with you. his wind gate. At one point, Geraldo Rivera runs up to the levee where the water's rushing over at him and stands under it until finally you see him turn around and run the other way as <laughs> so the flood comes towards his feet. Crazy people! Are they not? NPR said, yeah, two million people evacuated New Orleans to make room for the reporters <laughs> to come to town. And I watched that and I think of Christians and Genesis 1 Because it sometimes feels to me like Christians do precisely this thing. We put on our gear, we prepare for the storm, we tether ourselves down to the words of the Bible, and we refuse to leave. And the storm comes and brews, and we often cause it and bring it with us, and it swirls all around us, and by George, we are going to defend this text if it kills us. If the storm blows us away, we will defend God's reputation and God's story. We will ensure people interpret this right, that they understand correctly what Genesis 1 is trying to teach. And it occurs to me, um, while we're willing to take a beating for the story, that it might be more helpful for Christians to disarm ourselves. Especially when I look at the patterns of God and our teacher Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. I don't really see God and Jesus tethering themselves down for the sake of being right. I don't usually see them stirring up the argument and, and notching up the volume. It, it, it was one thing, I believe, the month of August that we did learn from all of the presenters. The remnant faithful people will be people who can represent a loving God. Did you hear that in August? I did. I'm not sure Christians who turn up the volume on the faith and science debate and Christians who who are going to ensure that we're right, I'm not sure those kinds of Christians can represent a loving God very well in our world. It might help us to disarm ourselves. Disarming means there's a, a little better chance you won't be a casualty along the way. I won't cause a casualty along the way. I am beginning to believe what my professors tried to teach me, that truth wins in the end. We might not live long enough to see it, your children might not see it, my grandchildren might not see it, but in the end, truth is known and truth wins. That is God's business. I am not sure that God needs a bunch of Christians in storm gear over Genesis 1 protecting his good reputation. Truth will win. It might help us to disarm ourselves, to untether ourselves from the literal interpretation of this world. It is, word. It is after all, exalted poetry. You can hardly demand it to mean one thing. The objective isn't to be right. It is simply to be in awe of a creator who, who sees all that is an uninhabited and unproductive and claims it for his own and goes to work already. In the first two verses of the Bible, the gospel is right there. A God who creates and claims and pulls to himself and binds himself to creation in a way that no other story of origins does in all of history. We miss the beauty and the generosity and the play and, friends, the responsibility when we, when we decide we're going to anchor in and defend Genesis 1. In our battle, we can misunderstand it, we can force it, we can even destroy it as a witness in the world. Have you seen that happen? We can destroy it in the world. I really believe all the text wants to say, as the foundation for everything else that comes in the Bible, all the text wants to say can be summarized by Gerard Manley Hopkins' line, the earth is full of the grandeur of God. That's Genesis 1. That's the exalted poetry. And it's a, it's an, it's a God that the earth, the heavens and earth have not seen yet. It is uh, something that the astronauts from the Apollo 8 mission understood and some of you were alive and lived through this. 1968 was a good time in America when the Apollo 8 crew, three of them, decided uh, to do what no human crew had ever done. Only robotic camera had seen the far side of the moon, what they call the back side of the moon. And so a crew of three went to the moon to photograph the, lunar surf, the surface of the moon in lunar orbit for the first time these three men were going to see what no one else had seen. They took a fancy equipment, the latest technology, thousands of images were recorded those few days Apollo 8 was in orbit. On one particular day when they did get to the back side of the moon, they had to roll the spacecraft in such a way to photograph the moon's surface that their antenna lost communication with Earth for a while and they knew that was going to happen. They recorded their images that day, but one image they took was not slated for the mission. It happened almost accidentally as when they completed the images of the surface of the moon, the, the captain, the commander, turned the spacecraft to the side searching for communication between the antenna and earth and as he he turned that spacecraft sideways he saw out of their little window something no human eye has ever seen and something recorded still still said to be one of the most significant environmental photos of all time when the astronauts saw not a sunrise but an earth rise from moon it is after looking at that moon, that uh, Earth rise that the three astronauts went on air with a publicized live audio reading for Earth, those of us here on Earth. This is the message that was broadcast Christmas Eve 1968 from three scientists on one of America's most significant experimental journeys.
1: It's now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the Earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, Day was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning was the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the water. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning was the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered in together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. And God called the dry land earth and together, together, the gathering together of the waters called these seas. and God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8 we close with good night, good luck a Merry Christmas and God bless all of you all of you on the good earth
0: Isn't that something? Scientists gathering significant data, thousands of experiments, parameters, journals, measurements, equipment. Yet what they express in that broadcast on Christmas Eve is precisely the tone and the perspective of Genesis 1. It is worship. They... They turn sideways and they see the earth, and the commander says, Oh my, look at that. That is our story of beginnings. It's not a story recorded that we might ask, How long did that take? It's a story recorded that we might ask, Who on earth is that creator? I want to know more about that creator. May we take care of and speak well of this story that we find ourselves in. Amen.
2: Isn't he beautiful? Beautiful, isn't he, Prince of Peace, Son of God, isn't he? the Lord Almighty God Isn't he beautiful, beautiful, isn't he Prince of Peace, Son of God, isn't he Isn't He, he? Counselor, Counselor, Almighty God, Isn't isn't He, isn't He, isn't He, isn't He?
0: So, to the wonderful, beautiful God who sees all that's uninhabited and all that's unproductive and hovers over and pulls it close and begins a work, to that God be glory and honor and power forever. We find ourselves in that story with you today, and what a beautiful place to be. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.